I'm very pleased that I'm um, in conversation with Sohela, whose work I have known for a long time and admired her bravery, her courage, and her writing, of course. Um, my own journey as an activist actually began as a journalist. I was walking through the hills of Nepal when I came across rows of women, uh, rows of villages with missing girls. And this was about 25 years ago. And I began to ask the villagers where the girls were. The answer changed my life because I found that to my horror, sex trafficking existed where little girls between the ages of nine and 13 were being smuggled across the border of India and Nepal, put on buses and trains, and sold to pimps in the brothels of Calcutta and Bombay for as little as $100, $150, put inside the brothels for the next four or five years, um, and raped by eight or 10 men every night. And behind the pimps and the brothel keepers were the money lenders, the financiers, the landlords, organized criminal networks, and finally the sex buyers who were driving this. And the youngest girl I met, uh, at that time was a seven-year-old. So investigating the story um, was important because as a journalist, I had to tell the story. I made a documentary called The Selling of Innocence, and uh, that was a life-changing experience for me because as a journalist, I'd covered war, famine, ethnic conflict, um, all kinds of things. But I had never seen this kind of intimate exploitation of one human being by another. So I wanted to do something about it. And I won an Emmy and quit journalism and decided to go back to the women in prostitution in the brothels of India to ask them what to do. And the first thing they told me was that, um, get our kids into school. Whatever has happened to us has happened, but we want a different future for our children. So uh, I said, fine, but you know, I'll talk to the principal, I'll raise some money for the tuition, that should be enough. So they said, no, no, it has to be done systematically and continuously, let's create an organization. That was a bit daunting to me because I, had, um, I didn't know how to do it. I wasn't a doctor, I wasn't a lawyer, I wasn't a social worker, I didn't know how to make a business plan. So I asked the women, I sat in a, on a straw mat on the floor and I asked the women, I said, what are your dreams? And they said, we have four dreams, school for our children, a job in an office for ourselves, a room of our own, and justice. So those four dreams literally became our business plan. And you know, fast forward to now, the organization is more than 20,000 strong. Uh, its members are the women in prostitution and their children. And they march on the streets, they fight for their rights, uh, they ask for changes in laws. And we have educated more than a thousand such girls across the country. So it's in Bombay, it's in Calcutta, it's in Delhi, Bihar. And what I realized as I was doing this work was that the sex trafficking and the buying of sex was so normalized that um, I had to understand where the connections were to tackle on this system. And then I realized that it's so embedded in patriarchy, the normalization of men will be men, and uh, prostitution is as old as the hills, the stigma, the discrimination, all of that that the women faced, um, the oppression and the absence of choices, which people did not notice. So very often uh, people would say, oh, these women want to be in prostitution. 
But actually, I saw little girls who had no choice. Actually, their choices were taken away by poverty, by caste, by age, by being female. And so, um, you know, that's been my journey. And I began to see prostitution as commercial rape um, and uh, body invasion based on someone just giving money and therefore making it all right. And today, that's why, um, you know, this conversation is critically important to me with uh, Sohela, whose book, is called, uh, What Shall We Talk About When We Talk About Rape? So I would like uh, Sohela to begin by explaining her life journey and how did she end up writing this vitally important book. In this time where things are so polarized in both our countries, it's really important for people like us to have conversations because we're both feminists, we both believe in the power of women, and yet here we are, I actually, we have fundamental disagreements, Ruchira and I, I do not agree with her philosophy of her organization, and yet here we are together, and there are many things we do agree on, so I hope that that's a model for people being able to talk with people that they disagree with. So I was a teenager, I was 17 years old, and I had just graduated high school, my parents had recently moved to America. And after, between high school and college, I went home for the summer with my father and grandmother. And that summer in Bombay, we, I went out for a walk one evening with a friend of mine, and we were abducted by four armed men who took us up the mountain and wounded us very badly. They all raped me, they hurt us, broke some bones, threatened to kill us, and you know, they were armed, so we had to kind of do what they said. And at the end of a, a rather very long evening, they decided to let us go because I swore to them that I would never tell a soul what happened, which makes me feel very pleased to be here today <laughs> because my book is now out in nine countries. Um, so, so after this happened, Three weeks later, I came back to America and I went to college, still in bandages and all that. And it was fabulous because it felt like it was really far away from this weird thing that happened that had nothing to do with real life, which we now know has everything to do with real life. Then three years later, when I was a junior, I got a grant to go back to India to study rape in India as my senior thesis. And I kind of happily got on the plane and came home. I went home expecting to find lots and lots of rape victims to talk to and maybe some rapists who would talk to me. I was just completely naive. So I showed up at home. Nobody would talk to me. My uncle tried to molest me. Um, and everyone I met said either that there was no rape in India or it happened only in very particular paradigms, like upper class to lower class. You know, no one had what we know now to be true, which is that most rape actually happens with people just like you. My rape is actually a very atypical rape. I call it sort of the Bollywood rape, the rape that is kind of comforting for us to think about because we think it's out there, it's monsters, but it's not. So I, at age 20, was rather indignant and outraged as one does get to be at 20, and I found a feminist magazine in India and wrote a little piece saying that I was raped, I'm not ashamed, this is what I think of it, I'm not the criminal they are, and I sent in my photograph with that, and they published it. Um, so this was actually a really good thing for me to do because remember there was no internet. So I could publish it, send it off, go to America and forget about it, feeling like I'd done my bit. 
And it did create a stir in India, but I was far away. And then I felt that I had kind of done my bit. Um, then I graduated college. I did write the thesis somehow or the other. And I graduated. I worked in the rape crisis center for a while. And then I moved on from the subject. I had 30 amazing years of a great life, the rape as we know, is an extremely, extremely traumatic thing. But one of the things I really want to say is that it's one of the traumas of life. It doesn't have to be everything. It was terrible, but here I am. I had a 30 years of a great life. I became a writer. I married the sexiest man in the world who is here. Um, I had a child, and life went on. And then, um, on December 12, 2016, as you know, there was the gang rape and murder in India that somehow set off this huge conflagration of protest, which was amazing to see because no one, really it was a topic that just was not discussed at all in India. And suddenly there were thousands of people marching in the street because of this young woman who'd been murdered. And I was sitting in New York feeling horrified at the rape, but thrilled at the kind of mass protest that I was seeing. Um, and also felt like now I, I, my work here is done. You know, there are people carrying on this, this fight and everything is fine. And I was carrying on. And then on New Year's Day, I was on a train and I checked my phone for email. And um, I saw a friend of mine in Delhi had sent me a link to a Facebook page. I'm not on Facebook, so I had no idea that all this was happening. She said that you must have seen this. And somebody, the world media was focused on India because the world media loves to think of India as the pit where all the bad things happen. And many bad things do happen there, but they also happen here. So they were looking desperately, in the, because rape was in the headlines, they were looking for someone to talk to, a victim. But in all these 38 years, 35 years it was, not another single woman had come out and said. So somebody found my Manushi article and posted it. And so suddenly they had a face but nobody asked me, and I had no idea, and I'd essentially almost forgotten that I'd written this thing. So I got a real fright, and then all hell broke loose in my life, because media was calling me from everywhere, friends who I had no idea, who had no idea that this had ever happened to me, because it just never came up, were suddenly reading about me. I went to get a sandwich in New York in the West Village, and the guy said, I saw you on Facebook. It was really really disturbing, and I, w I want to explain that it wasn't disturbing because I was ashamed of the rape or anything. It was just disturbing because I, I hadn't chosen this attention. Also, my daughter was 11, had no idea this had happened to me. So it was all a bit of a shock, and then we talked as a family, and, and we thought that, I thought that I, wa I want to finish, I want to finish by saying something 35 years on. I don't want this thing in Manushi to be my last statement. I have something to say. So I wrote an op-ed for the New York Times, which went globally viral. But this time it was fine, because this time I'd chosen it. And I got about a thousand emails in a few days from men, women, all over the world telling me their stories. And it just, it was very satisfying and validating. And that was it. And then I kind of watched what went on in India. I was a little horrified at what went on, because I felt that there was all this protest, it was great, it was in the conversation, but some of the results weren't so great. I don't like the way some of the laws have changed. I don't like the way people used it as an excuse to keep their daughters home at night. It was a way of controlling women. I felt like it was again being used as social control. But anyway, I, once again, I was done. 
Um, but then I went on and did all these other things to kind of get away from the rape victim of the world stereotype. And, but every time I went to an editor and said, I have a book proposal, I would get back the answer, write a, write a memoir. But for me to write a memoir with rape at its center would be really dishonest because rape isn't actually the biggest thing in my life. So I didn't, I didn't want to do that because it didn't feel true. So I didn't, I said no to everyone. And then last, actually it was only the summer of 2017, I sent what I consider to be a brilliant book proposal to an editor in India who immediately wrote back and said, yeah, yeah, this is fine, but write a memoir. And I, you know, by this time I just had it. So I wrote her a really nasty letter saying, I'm not gonna write a memoir, I'm not interested. And instead of just slinking away, she wrote back to me and she said, you know, you've been working on this issue on and off in various ways for your whole life. Don't write a memoir, but write about the subject. You've written about things like raising children. You've written about rape and war. You've written about rape in the family. Maybe you have something to say. And it just really got me excited. I felt like I had moved away from the me as victim thing, even in my own head, and that I had something to say. So then I, I've been unbelievably lucky. I have the most fantastic publishers all over the world, and somehow this book came out. And I want to tell you a little bit about how it came about, and then I'll, I'll read a couple pages. So I knew that I had certain points I wanted to make. I knew I wanted to talk about why rape should be just part of everyday conversation and what's wrong with the fact that it's not. We keep, we keep quiet about rape and so victims, survivors, whatever you want to call them, feel really isolated, can't get the help they need, feel alone. But another really awful thing happens. We keep quiet and rapists get away with rape because they know they can do it. And they know that we can walk around thinking, oh, rapists are these guys out there. We don't talk about the fact that it's ordinary men who rape and it's ordinary people like us who have created a world where it's just normal. And to me, this, you know, I'm, I'm actually quite a lighthearted, happy person. And it really outrages me about rape because it takes away that lightheartedness. It's suddenly, for no reason at all, your joy is taken away, someone has hurt you, for what? They're not even stealing food to feed their children. It's only viciousness. And why do we as a society promote this? So I wanted to talk about all this. I wanted to talk to survivors. I wanted to talk about why we can talk about it as a really heavy subject and that it's okay to be raped and be fine. The fact that I'm sitting here happy with my life and, and feeling pleased in general does not mean that what happened to me was not terrible. There was this terrible dichotomy is that if you're raped, especially in India, you're better off dead, zinda lash, you know, living corpse. So either if you're not terminally depressed or dead, if you're actually okay, then it wasn't so bad. It was just sex. So then that made me think about the connection between rape and sex. And as feminists, we've been really afraid to talk about that, but we must, because often what we call rape education, what we call sex education turns into rape education. If you're teaching girls that you have to control boys and boys that, you know, there's a point of no return after which you're not responsible. That is not sex ed, that is rape ed. So I wanted to talk about all these things, but I also have a very short attention span and I'm not that, I don't have that strong of a work ethic. So I, I did not want to go sit in libraries and read thousands of books and feel like I had to have this encyclopedic knowledge. 
So what I did was I just called every single person I knew and said, I'm writing a book on rape. What do you think I should do? And the most fascinating things happened. So I read and I had my own thoughts and my own research. I had my thousand emails from rape survivors and I could write to many of them and say, can I interview for my book? So I had this whole kind of database that I had kept without knowing why for five years. And then I just, the book just kind of wrote itself in this wonderful organic way. For instance, I uh, told a friend of mine Sarah McNally, who owns a bookstore in New York, and said, I'm writing a book on rape. She said, oh, my friend Yasmin El Rife is visiting from Egypt. You must talk to her. So I met Yasmin. She was my first interview. I met her in Washington Square Park in Manhattan. And she told me the most unbelievable story. She, well, she's about this high and really skinny. And really, you feel like you could knock her over with a feather. And she's one of the bravest people I've ever met. She, in Egypt, she's Egyptian, and she formed a group called Opantish, which were, who were vigilantes, who would go into Tahrir Square during the Arab Spring when women were being raped by mobs of men and rescue those women. So then I knew I had to write a chapter on heroes, which hadn't occurred to me. I called a friend of mine in Australia who said, you're writing a book on rape. I just met this dentist, and this dentist specializes in treating victims of trauma. And that was so fascinating to me. So I tracked down this dentist in Melbourne, Australia, and we Skyped, and there's an entire chapter in my book about dentistry. So how is this connected to rape? So I really, it, it, I just went where it led me and talked to men, women, trans men, trans women all over the world. I spent time in a brothel and discovered a bunch of sex workers who were way more liberated than many housewives. I just found all these surprises and I just felt really inspired by, by people's courage. And I just got a chance to rave and rant about how we raise our children, about politics. And it, it, it was really heavy and intense, but it was really fun because people are amazing. So I want to just read a small bit. So this chapter is called, Your Rape is Worse Than Mine. So I started with a quote from Kevin Powers, who's an Iraq war veteran who wrote a novel called The Yellow Birds. And he said, nothing is more isolating than having a particular history. At least that's what I thought. Now I know, all pain is the same. Only the details are different. I am sitting in a Mumbai suburb with Kalki Keklin, who is a, an Indian film star. And she is telling me about the sexual abuse she lived through as a child. I am aghast at what I'm hearing. I thank her for telling me her story and say I cannot imagine how she has come so far in working through it. I cannot conceive how awful it must have been. I can't imagine going through your experience, she says. I can't think of anything worse. There's something slightly unhinged about the scene. Two grown women each insisting that the other deserves the prize for worst rape. Is one rape worse than the other? This is a ridiculous question. Why do we insist on ranking sexual assault? Survivors do it to our own discredit. I remember sitting in a support group and thinking to myself that my rape wasn't as bad as those of these other poor losers. No matter how many stories, no matter how many victims, I'm always appalled afresh. It always sounds so terrible. Mine always seems more manageable. I'm not sure why we do this. 
It's a weird phenomenon that I have seen over and over. In my experience, only individuals do it. Put us in a group, and we humans are usually eager to claim the mantle of victimhood. Collective victimhood is well documented. But when it comes to sitting in a room on an August afternoon and talking about rape with a fellow survivor, I'm always aghast and appalled and convinced that the other person suffered more than me. Perhaps there's some defense mechanism at work. If someone else is worse off, suddenly what you're dealing with isn't so bad. It doesn't always work, of course. After I had two miscarriages and one man helpfully told me about his wife's six failed pregnancies, I just wanted to put my head in a pressure cooker and boil it. But sometimes it does. I'm not wholly convinced about my defense mechanism theory. I know how bad my rape was, but everyone else's still seems worse. I don't think it's because I'm trying to downplay my story. It's because I know my story. I know it beyond the few sentences I've written or the words I've used to describe it to so many people over the years. I know the tiny little details, although by now it's pretty hazy, a rather wonderful side effect of time. I know what they did, and I know what I felt, and I know how bad it was. But I also know I made it through. When you experience something firsthand, you know its colors and smells and the full horror of the hands pulling off your shoes. But you also know the limits of your pain and suffering. You don't have to wonder, and reality, no matter how bad, is always more manageable than unknown horror. I was never in Kalki's position, so how do I know I would have survived? I know I survived what happened to me. No matter how bad it was, here I am. Here is the East River flowing outside my window. Here is a bowl of pomegranate seeds, deeply joyously red. Here is a little plastic pig that my spouse gave me when we first met. Here is my brother wearing a suit and tie, looking seriously at me in a photo that always cracks me up for some reason. Here I am, no matter what happened, here I am. Whatever the reason, ranking rapes is a prime example of the magical thinking that swirls around rape. Seems like no matter how rational we are, when it comes to life's big things, death, pain, birth, love, we quickly revert to charms and chants and magic potions. So what if it doesn't work? And if it happened to me, then it can't happen to my child. Now there's an extreme example of magical thinking. We all know that we ultimately can't protect our children, but we never stop pretending that we can. It's too difficult not to. Having a child really brings home the reality that there is indeed something much worse than whatever happened to you someone hurting the small, magnificent person who depends on you. While it serves no useful purpose to rank pain and suffering, we do. And of course, rapes do fall into some categories. Being held by warlords and gang-raped for years just isn't, the same, isn't in the same box as being raped by a stranger where you live and going straight to hospital. That's true. But you cannot predict which, women will be, which woman will be able to come to terms with it sooner. Will the marital rape survivor build a new life faster than the incest survivor? Will the young Kenyan flower farmer raped by the farm manager find peace sooner than the 65-year-old white woman whose assailant broke into her apartment and raped her? 
It's very delicate, this balancing act, to acknowledge that rape is just ghastly and to simultaneously assert that it is simply one of the many ghastly things. <laughs>